0: Well, a few weeks ago, when we looked at God's holiness, we saw that it is the attribute which is perpetually chanted in heaven itself. Holy, holy, holy is the continual cry. And you might recall we saw that in two scenes. The first was Isaiah 6, where the prophet sees the Lord himself seated on a throne in the midst of these six winged Seraphs covering their eyes and chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it's this glimpse of heaven itself and God in his heaven which causes the prophet to be undone, to unravel, to say, woe is me. And the second scene that we looked at was a scene from right before our text this morning. It's from Revelation chapter 4 where we are told that a door was opened into heaven, and John also, like Isaiah, was summoned into heaven itself. And he sees something quite similar to Isaiah. He sees the one on the throne. He sees the 24 elders, seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God, and he sees a sea of glass. And there are also these strange living creatures, also with six wings and eyes all around and within. And just like Isaiah's seraphs, these creatures also never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, heaven, the heaven glimpsed in these scenes, is a created place. It's the place where God's glory uniquely dwells. Where his his radiance, his infinite, eternal, unchangeable majesty floods this place, fills heaven itself. And this is why even a glimpse of it creates a kind of beautiful terror. And I said before, but it's a firm conviction of mine that the recovery of this thick, Hyper real, wildly populated heaven, right? There are myriads of angels. There are the saints uh, who are departed, the just men and women made righteous, right? The church of the firstborn is enrolled there. It's a wildly populated place, and it's lit up with the immediate effulgence of the face of God, recovering this thick heaven is one of the great needs of the church in our day. For the heaven of the church is either some ethereal, otherworldly irrelevance, or it's some lovely place to which we will go. Some very pleasant footnote to our Christian existence on the earth which, of course, the earth is where all the real action is. But in the vision of the prophets, in the vision of Isaiah, in the vision of John, heaven is the epicenter of existence. Right When Isaiah sees the God here, he thinks all the nations are less than nothing. So heaven is the place of supreme importance, pulsating importance, because it impinges, it engulfs, It hovers over all, and it relativizes all earthly affairs. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious face. And thus Jesus and his apostles summon the church repeatedly to have your affections, your thoughts, your treasure, your citizenship, your reward, your hope fixed there, above And it is into this place, into heaven itself, in your very humanity, that Jesus ascends. If your conception of heaven thins out, your conception of the glory of the ascension will thin out. It's into that place, in your flesh, that Jesus ascends. This is the one who, as man, now comes face to face with that glory and is not undone does not fall down, is not unraveled, but lives. This is the location that we are speaking of when we confess with the creed, he ascended into heaven. And so this morning in Revelation 5, the heavenly scene that John saw in Revelation 4 continues. So what is Revelation 5? It's what the ascension means in heaven. This is what the ascension has wrought. And so I want to look at the text under four headings that they are there in your bulletin in the back, page 5. The Lion and the Lamb, and then there's three choirs that I want to look at. All right, so first, the Lion and the Lamb. John is lifted up. He's in the heavenly throne room. He sees in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne a scroll. It's got writing on both sides. It's sealed up with seven seals. The scroll contains God's plan of judgment and redemption. Culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. That's verified for us by the whole rest of the book of Revelation. Then John sees this mighty angel, and the angel makes a loud proclamation in the form of a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, to ask this question is to ask essentially who has sovereign authority? Not only to unveil the plan of God, but to execute the cosmic purpose of God. And no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth is found, is able to open the scroll or look into it. And the Apostle John begins to weep. He says he weeps loudly. He like instinctively knows the importance of the scroll. If the purposes of God For the created order are to come to fruition. The scroll has to be opened. Then one of the elders. The elders here are heavenly representatives of the church. One of the elders says to John. Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. So the Messiah is like a, is a lion. He's a victorious warrior king. And his conquest, his triumph, his victory, is the basis of his worthiness, of, of his fitness, to be the executor, the sovereign executor, of all the purposes of God concealed in the scroll, to be the master and the Lord of history, to be the Alpha and the Omega. And then what comes next? is crucial in the scene. And it's absolutely astonishing. I think it's crucial for grasping the message of Revelation, but it's also crucial for grasping the nature of Christian existence in the world, the Christian life. John looks, and he sees in the middle of this scene, not a lion or a military warrior, but he sees a lamb. He sees the Passover lamb. He sees the suffering servant lamb of Isaiah 53. And in one of the great turns of phrase in the New Testament, he says he sees the lamb standing as though it had been slain. You get the paradox. Literally, it's standing as though it had been slaughtered. He sees a slaughtered lamb that yet lives. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who according to Isaiah slays his enemies with the breath of his mouth, now appears as a slaughtered and slain lamb. This is the Messiah. And this is how the messianic warrior king conquers. It's at the heart of the strangeness and the mystery of Christianity. Christian conquest, as I've said before, is not by slaughter, but by being slaughtered. This is the way of the cross. Notice that the lamb in this text, though slaughtered, is now standing in heaven. Meaning he has been raised, not only has he been raised... He has ascended into heaven. He's been vindicated openly. Even as the martyrs will be vindicated openly. Even as you will be vindicated openly. Even as the church shall be vindicated openly. And he's got these seven horns which are a symbol of the fullness of the paradoxical power of the Spirit. So among other things the text is saying to us, fullness of power resides not with the empire, but with the slaughtered and standing lamb. This has always been a source of great comfort for me, because when he exercises wrath, which he will do in due time, it is the wrath of this lamb. It'll be the just and the pure and the holy meekness of the slaughtered one brought to bear on the intractable evils of creation. This is sovereign power, yes. But it's the antithesis of earthly political power. Or of any kind of violent coercion. It's the opposite of raw totalitarian force. It's power in the hands of the slaughtered one. And he's got this sevenfold spirit of God that he possesses. He sends that spirit out now that he's ascended into all the earth, which is why, by the way, you could deduce this just from this text, which is why the church always celebrates, right, in the order of the historical events, it celebrates Pentecost, the week after Ascension. The one who ascends, sends the spirit. So, the lamb then, he is never called the lion again in the book of Revelation. The lamb takes the scroll in the right hand, out of the right hand of God who's on the throne. And thus the lamb assumes sovereign executive control over the whole created order. All things the father does, he does through the son in the spirit. So this is the first big and really the chief thing to see today. It's the big takeaway of the ascension into heaven. It means that Jesus, the slain, the slaughtered and standing lamb, is now enthroned as king over all. That's the big headline of the ascension. Jesus is enthroned as the sovereign ruler, the executor of all, the Lord of heaven and earth. Far above, Paul says, we heard this in the New Testament. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Every name that can be named this age or the age to come. Jesus has ascended into that heaven. In your humanity, he has opened the scroll. He is enthroned over all. And what this does is this unleashes, right? This like detonates a series, three Expanding choirs of praise. And I want to look at those now. The first choir. So you've got the four living creatures. They, what do they stand for? Well, they stand for the whole animate creation. And the 24 elders stand for the church in all of its ages. This is, this is the created order then in its heavenly coming fullness. That's the scene John's been lifted up into. Right, to be lifted up into heaven is to be lifted up into the end. That's another way to put this. So the, the 24 elders and these, these creatures, they fall down and they worship the Lamb. Now think about this. The, in the previous chapter, chapter 4, all worship was ascribed to God the Father, to the one who sits on the throne. Here, remarkably, the Lamb ascends and receives worship with the Father. And by implication, the Lamb who possesses the fullness of the Spirit also is worshiped. And so John is a full-blooded Trinitarian. Not Not only does the ascension mean Jesus is king, the ascension shows us Jesus is worshiped as king, and thus he is God. And so the whole earthly creation and the whole church, right, worship the conquering lamb. He's ascended as king. He's worshipped by all, along with the one who sits on the throne. Now, this may be commonplace to a lot of us. But believe me, it was an explosion of cataclysmic proportions for the early church. Because Jesus of Nazareth appearing, being slaughtered, being raised, meant they had to rethink their Jewish monotheism. That somehow the God of Israel has this one inside, interior to his own being. And that, of course, ends up in something that, Lord willing, will look at in a few weeks. Namely, the doctrine of the Trinity. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, these creatures these elders, they sing a new song, the text says. The new song in the Bible is a response to the marvelous new things, fresh things, epochal things, decisive things that God does in Jesus Christ. God has inaugurated the new creation in Christ. It's a new action, and thus a new song is sung. If you look at that song... The content of the first line is that the lamb is worthy to take away the scroll, to take the scroll and open its seals. Again, you'll notice the ironic nature of the worthiness. He's worthy precisely because he was slain. And by his blood, we're told, he ransomed or purchased the people for God. He ransomed or purchased the people for God. You know what's happening here? is this is in accordance with all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which promised that God was going to bless all the families of the earth in the seed of Abraham. This is the lamb ransoming a Catholic, universal, multicultural people. He has purchased, right, at this price, this exquisite price, this infinite price, he's purchased, the text says, a people, the text says from or out of, the preposition is important, right? From, out of every tribe, and from out of every language, and out of every people, and out of every nation. The whole, the fourfold phrase represents the whole world. And so what does John see? He sees the brimming international fullness of the people of God, the elect from every nation. This is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. The scene. This is the nations streaming into Zion as the prophets foretold. And John glimpses this. He glimpses not only that Christ is ascended and is king, not only that he's ascended and king and he's worshipped, but that he's worshipped by the whole international Catholic church from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And the goal of this purchase of the Lamb's blood is a people, we're told, a kingdom and priests unto his God. That's what Jesus has made you, a kingdom and priests unto his God. From all the kingdoms of the world, God gathers a people, and he makes them a kingdom, his kingdom. His kingdom, right? Our confessions say the visible church is the kingdom of God. Jesus reigns over all things, of course, but he reigns uniquely. He reigns in a redemptive way. He reigns with the scepter of his word and his spirit over the church. Which is a kingdom drawn from all the kingdoms. A holy nation drawn out of all the nations. And as ascended then, the lamb is the great head and the great king of the church. And we participate in this reality as kings and priests, John says. You are a king because you're raised up and seated with Christ already by faith. You are a priest because you worship Christ and you minister to Christ in the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus bearing your humanity is. Christ ascends into heaven and we ascend with him. Right? The Heidelberg Catechism says this when it talks about the ascension. Right, we have our own flesh in heaven now. As a pledge that Jesus will take us there. Yet the redeemed will ultimately, the text says, when heaven descends, when the veil between heaven and earth is torn, at Christ's coming, they will reign on the earth. They're not reigning on the earth at the time John writes, but they shall reign on the earth. This is the first choir, but it expands because the ascension is the crowning event, the culmination of the whole pilgrimage of our Lord in his descent and his ascent back to glory. And so this, John runs out of words, he runs out of images, he runs out of scenes to communicate the splendor of it. So you have this second choir, John looks and he hears, and in addition, in addition to the representatives of the whole animate creation and the whole church, he hears the voices of many angels, we're told. And he he doesn't have a Greek number big enough to tabulate what he sees. So he just piles up the largest numbers, the largest Greek numbers he has at his disposal. Myriads, it gets translated into English this way, right? Myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands. Like the biggest number I can come up with. An innumerable host of angels. Heaven is such an interesting place, just as an aside. There's like an innumerable host of angels, one of whom you could be fascinated with probably for a millennium. But John sees just an innumerable flock of them. And they, they say with a loud voice, this is in verse 12... Here we're increasingly moving to a crescendo. They're singing in harmony, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so now the praise of the lamb is filling the heavenly sanctuary. But notice this, right? It is still the lamb. It is still his immolation, his execution, which is the central object and the cause of worship, even though he's ascended into heaven itself. It's really important to get this right. The imprint, the stamp of the cross is a permanent feature of worshiping the nail-scarred, slaughtered, but standing one. Contrary then to the emperor, the emperor and the Roman emperor would have regional choirs, if you will, that would sing his praise. Contrary to the emperor, they are ascribing all praise to the Lamb. He gets all the attributes of kingship, and that's the, that's the importance of this, those next seven terms. There's a four plus three pattern in this text. The first four terms, power, wealth, wisdom, might, normally ascribed to the empire, are attributed to the Lamb. And the last three terms, honor, glory, and blessing, they're a response of the angelic host, To the Lamb's Assumption of Kingship. And finally, there's a third choir. And here, the singing, the worship, becomes cosmic, fully inclusive. John hears, notice what he says, he hears every creature in heaven. Ultimately, the ascension bears down on every creature. It's not just something Christians celebrate off in the corner. Ultimately, the ascension... Means this: every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea. And just for effect, just for effect, John throws in the completely redundant phrase, and all that is in them. Now, every creature that's in the sea, and all that's in the sea, to drive home like the universal acclamation. He hears them say to him who sits on the throne—that's God the Father—and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever. The Lamb again receives the same adoration as him who sits on the throne. The ascended one is worshipped as God. And here, the ascription of praise to this one is unending forever and ever. So this glimpse that John gets is nothing less than an anticipation Of the future universal acclaim, right, that the Lord God and the Lamb shall receive. Right, Philippians chapter 2, for example, which by the way is citing Isaiah 45. Paul's citing the prophet Isaiah there. He says that before the exalted and ascended Christ, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the fulfillment of the prophetic vision of the universal worship of God by the whole earth, by the whole world. You might know that in Romans 14, Paul also cites Isaiah 45. He speaks of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing there, and he makes it clear that that occurs at the final judgment. That's what you're looking at here. To be lifted up into heaven is to be lifted up into the eschaton, and thus to see all the redeemed out of all the nations with the whole embodied creation, with all the angelic hosts, confessing the Lamb as Lord, worshiping Him with the one who sits on the throne. This is what the ascension has wrought. It's one of the most exhilarating scenes in all of Scripture. There's a famous New Testament scholar in the U.K. who tells the story of going into the, I forget which cathedral it was, but some grand cathedral in in the U.K., and he's walking in with the other minister for some service they were doing. There were two ministers doing it jointly, and he said, you know, our New Testament reading is from Revelation 4 today. I think it's one of the two greatest texts in the Bible. And the other minister said, well, what's the second one? And he said, Revelation 5. (laughs) Like 4 and 5. This is one of the most... Exhilarating scenes. And what but what I want you to grasp is simple. Right? It is the ascension of the slain and standing lamb. It's his entry into that heaven that I tried to describe, which triggers, which sets off this unending, expanding choir of praise. It is the ascension which enables us to worship. No ascension, no worship. I've said this before and People have told me they found this provocative, but I'm going to say it again. If Jesus was raised from the dead and wandering around Palestine somewhere, that would do us very little good. We need him in heaven with our humanity before the face of God. Right? No ascension, no worship. It's the ascension which opens your throat and enables the church to say, worthy is the lamb. It's the ascension which discloses that the Lamb now shares the throne of God himself. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. For from that heaven he reigns, and he reigns over all. This is what the ascension has wrought. Worthy is the ascended Lamb. Amen. Amen.